Oh, good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. Those uh, videos where the kids are describing something just never get old. I absolutely love it. I want some chocolate. I know the feeling. Uh, so this month, we've been looking at Easter, actually, every week. Um, the remembrance and the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And um, some of its implications for our life, uh, life generally, and for our lives personally. And... Um, you know, we're not pretending to cover all of the angles around Easter. Remember, we're not trying to stop conversations here. We're trying to start them. And so that's really what we're hoping to do this morning as well. So this last month, um, we've been looking at Easter every week. Uh, we started off the first Sunday of April was Palm Sunday. And Mike Bradaway uh, shared with us how Jesus shows up as the Savior we need, but not necessarily the hero that we want. Uh, on Easter Sunday, we considered who Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, the brokenhearted, the doubting, and the failed, and how that gives us just this great insight into the heart of God. And then last week, we considered how Easter actually makes what it means to follow Jesus simple, yet hard. Simple because it isn't about a religion, it's about a relationship with God, and hard because it's not just about admiration, it's about worship. And so um, the implications of Easter, we could talk about them, literally we could devote a year worth of Sundays talking about the implications of Easter and everything that it could mean for our lives. Um, and don't get me wrong, I, I think one of the implications of Easter might be bunnies and eggs and candy. I'm, you know, I have nothing against those things, they have their place. But it really is telling, I think, that the most important day in human history, and I say that like as a historian, saying regardless of whether or not you believe it's true or even whether you believe it's good, the uh, resurrection of Jesus from the dead or even the supposed resurrection of Jesus from the dead is like the hinge of history. It's the turning point of all history. Everything uh, turns on that and has changed the world uh, there's really no doubt about that. But to me, it shows this enormous gap between what Easter is and what it means when you look at how we actually celebrate it. Like, what do Easter eggs and chocolate bunnies have to do with the hinge of history? And the answer is nothing. And so um, I think what we're going to do this morning to close this series on the impact of Easter, we're going to look at, we're going to go back to like the biggest thing. I think we're going to drill down into what is um, arguably the biggest problem of the human condition, what has been described for millennia actually as the human dilemma, and, and how Easter presents us with an unprecedented and absolutely unique opportunity to flourish in the face of our biggest existential problem. Now, there are, of course, many ways to describe the human dilemma or the human condition, but essentially, it boils down to this. We love life, and life ends. That's it. That's the human dilemma. One anthropologist really unpacks this very well in a book that I would highly recommend called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. But this is what he said. Man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness and that he sticks out 
of nature with a towering majesty. And yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. The lower animals are, of course, free or spared of this painful contradiction as they lack a symbolic identity and the self-consciousness that goes with it. They merely act and move reflexively as they are driven by their instincts. Inside, they are anonymous, and even their faces have no name. They live in a world without time, pulsating, as it were, in a state of dumb being. The knowledge of death is reflective and conceptual, and animals are spared it. They live and they disappear with the same thoughtlessness. But to live a whole lifetime with the fate of death haunting one's dreams and even the most sun-filled days, that's something else. So I think he's right. And I think he's right on it with this. Basically, it comes down to this. Human beings are unique because of a discovery that we've made. Unlike any other creature, we have discovered the existence of the future. And maybe, we've never, maybe you've never thought about it that way, but that's really what it comes down to. Human beings know the future exists, that it's real. And this has been a huge blessing for our species. It means that human beings can prepare for the future in ways that help us not only to survive, but to thrive in the future. Things just, uh, random examples, education and exercise, agriculture and refrigeration, saving and investing. These are just a few of the ways that we live in the present with the presence of the future. Money might be one of the best examples, you know, and it can best be described, actually, as a bargain we make with the future. That's what money is. I mean, think about it. Through our effort and skill, we bring something of value into the world. Money is the way that we store our compensation for that value until such time in the future, when we want to be reimbursed by, with some good or service that someone else has created. That's what money is. Money is a bargain with the future. It's just a daily reminder in our pockets and on our bank statements that we have discovered the future. But the discovery of the future, also it's a great blessing, but it also comes with a great curse. Because we know that ultimately the future holds, and this is true regardless of how much we plan, it's, re it's true regardless of how much we prepare, the future holds our own demise. It does. Now, throughout history, there are various examples of how different civilizations and cultures have approached this human dilemma. It's an existential problem Every society and culture throughout history, we, we know that they've identified it as a problem, and it's just absolutely fascinating to look at all the different ways different cultures throughout history have approached the human dilemma. We love life, life ends. 
But really, when you look at all of the different approaches, they come down to basically two different categories. So one category is this. We become absolutely obsessed with death. Like from, think of ancestor worship in the Far East, even in the modern Far East, but certainly in the ancient Far East, the worship of ancestors to maybe the most famous of all ancient societies, ancient Egypt. When you break down ancient Egypt, what made that entire civilization go has been described basically, and I, and I think this is right, as a death cult. That is what it, that's what made them go. They were completely obsessed with death. And here's the reason. In the ancient world, death was everywhere. It was common. Infant mortality was through the roof. Average lifespans could be in the late 20s to mid-30s, depending. Life was, as one philosopher said, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And there was very little that you could do about it. And so it wasn't uncommon in that time to be obsessed with death. I think one of the ways that you can think about it is in the ancient world, death dominated life. It overshadowed all of life. So that's one kind of category of the way, and there's different details on how death dominated life, but that's one category. And then there's another category that's more like our modern approach, and it's the exact opposite of death dominating life, and it's that death is like sequestered. It's sanitized. We remove it from our day-to-day -day consciousness completely. We live longer. We live healthier lives. And so we've moved death and dying off to the side. It's just we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. So modern life isn't do dominated by death. But ironically, it is, it is directed, modern life is directed by our need for a distraction from our dilemma, a distraction from this idea of death. And Soren Kierkegaard, I think, described this per perfectly when he said, as we tranquilize ourselves with the trivial. It's a great line. The problem with both of these approaches, whether it's the obsession with death or the distraction from it, is that both really ruin our life here and now. Because the obsession dominates life, and all too often, the distraction directs our life. In other words, it, it makes our life all about things or something that doesn't lead to our flourishing. Whether it's the mindless pursuit of pleasure or power or prestige, maybe it's prioritizing security or control, but it's anxiety-producing, and it just colors all of life. So regardless of how the presence of the future or the presence of our future demise dominates our life explicitly or directs our life implicitly deep down. I think we all know that it's a no way to live. We knew that, our, our ancestors knew that in the ancient world and we know that now I think in the modern world, which is why the promise and the hope of Easter has been and continues to be so appealing to so many for the last 2,000 years.
someone sent me that uh, several years ago, and we used it before about five or six years ago, and I, I think it's so great. Because of him, in spite of the dilemma of life, we can flourish right here and right now. Because of him, we can be free from a life dominated by death or directed by the distraction from it. But this raises a huge question, and I think it's a practical question, and it's one that I kind of want to get at this morning. How does Easter do that? Like, how can we live at peace in the present with the presence of the future now that we've discovered it? How does Easter transform the human dilemma that we love life and yet life ends into a promise and a hope, something that actually fuels our flourishing for now and for forever? That's what I want to get at this morning. Now, I'm not going to pretend to answer that question. Again, we're just going to, we're trying to stir the pot on this. Start a conversation about how Easter might do that, okay? So there are countless ways to talk about Easter and to think about Easter. And if I think we're honest, um, there's a ton of really great questions about it as well. The most obvious being, is it true? Like, how can we believe in Easter, and we've talked about that before. We'll talk about it again, I'm sure. But this morning, I'd like to put a twist on this question and suggest that there's an even more critical question than, is it true? Can we believe in Easter? And that question goes like this. Is it good? Why should we trust in Easter? Is it good? Now, I want to start by working on this question for a little bit because I think there's something about it that we know, but we don't know that we know. Okay, and it, it goes like this. There is a big difference between what's true and what's good. There are lots of things in life that are true, but not necessarily good. One quick example, years ago, I was watching an interview with uh, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, and um, he was asked the question, it must be incredible to be loved and adored by so many people. And he kind of hesitated, you know, tweaked his head a little bit, he, and, and what he, he said, it really struck me. He said something to the effect of, it's true, you know, a lot of people love me, but that isn't always good, because there are a lot of really weird people out there, <laughs> right? It's a fascinating point if you think about it, but I've talked to so many people who believe in God, who believe in Jesus, who believe in Easter, who even believe that God loves them. They believe it is all true. And yet they'll come to me and ask me, why doesn't it seem to make any difference in my life? And I think this is why. Because it's possible to believe in God without trusting him. For the very simple reason that we don't believe he's good for us. So, see, here's the thing. We believe in things that are true, but we only trust in things that are good. For Easter to be trustworthy, for it to lean into our existential human dilemma and make a difference in how we really live our real everyday lives, yes, it has to be true. But if it isn't good, like if we don't see the goodness in it, it doesn't matter if it's true because we won't trust it. We won't base our life on it if we don't think it is good. So the question really is, is Easter good? 
Like, why should we trust in what Easter means for us? Specifically around this question of the the human dilemma. We love life and life ends. Around this predicament that we're in that we've discovered the future. And we know that the future holds our demise. How does trusting in Easter change our lives from either obsessing about that or distracting ourselves from it, okay? So near the end of Jesus' story, he was arrested. He was tortured and crucified. Three days later, his closest friends hear rumors that he's been resurrected, and this is what the Bible says. While they were saying all this, Jesus appeared to them and said, peace be with you. They thought they were seeing a ghost and were scared half to death. He continued with them, don't be upset. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's really me. Touch me. Look me over head to toe. A ghost doesn't have muscle and bone like this. And as he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. They still couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was too much. It seemed too good to be true. He asked, do you have any food here? And they gave him a piece of leftover fish they had cooked. He took it and ate it right before their eyes. Now, one of the many things that just fascinates me about this encounter with Jesus is he clearly gets that what the first question is, what they're asking, which is, how can this be true? That's what this is about, where he he says, touch me, give me some fish to eat. That's what that's all about. He's saying, believe it, I'm not a ghost. I'm really me. You're not imagining this. I'm alive. It's true. But notice that this is not just about it's true. We learn so much here that says, trust in this. It's good. Beginning with this. Easter is good because it means that the life, capital L, that Jesus is offering us, our forever future, is personal it's personal now there are a lot of religions and a lot of life philosophies that say that when you die you continue like you go on your energy is reunited with the universe you picture it sometimes i describe this in my philosophy class at lakeshore high school this view says like picture water being poured into the ocean Is the water still in the bottle? No. Something significant has changed. Does the water in the bottle still exist? Yes. Does it continue on? Yes. But here's the catch. It's not personal. It's not a personal existence anymore. It's more like kind of think Lion King, circle of life kind of thing. Like when you die, you fertilize the soil, the soil grows the plants, the animals eat the plants, and on and on it goes, circle of life, it continues. In this sense, we all live forever, and no one could deny that. Carl Sagan used to talk about this, an avowed atheist, that, that's that circle of life kind of idea. So, and you know, we're all stardust, essentially, right? But come on, let's be honest. While that is true, I'm not denying it, that's true, it isn't good. It's not good. Uh, How that is good news to anyone just blows me away. This isn't what we really want, is it? The deepest desire of our heart is not just to exist in any form and to continue on. It's to love 
and to be loved personally. And we may struggle and strive for money or accomplishment or power or security or control, but we do all of that in the hope, for the hope, ultimately, to love and to be loved. And here's the thing about love. Only people can love. Only people can love. Energy in the circle of life and stardust can't love, and it can't be loved. You have to be a real living person to love and to be loved. So if death means there's no personal future for us, death is taking from us everything that matters to us, ourselves, each other, and loving relationships. But the good promise and hope of Easter changes that. Here's how our friend C.S. Lewis describes it. The symbols under which heaven is presented to us are A, a dinner party, B, a wedding, C, a city, and D, a concert. It would be grotesque to suppose that the guests or citizens or members of a choir didn't know one another. And how can love of one another be commanded in this life if it is to be cut short at death? Think of yourself as a seed, patiently waiting in the earth, waiting to come up a flower in the gardener's good time, up into the real world, the real waking. I suppose that our whole present life, looked back on from there, will seem only a drowsy half-waking. We are here, life, here and now, in the land of dreams. But the crow of the rooster is coming. And at one point, Jesus says, it's really me. And he's not just existing as part of the circle of life. He hasn't become one with the all soul or like a glass of water poured into the ocean. It's really me, he says. I'm still me. I have the ability to love you still and you can love me personally. We should trust in Easter and Jesus because it means our future is personal and that is good. Now, Easter is also good because it means that the future is incredibly wonderful. Now, this is one of the biggest differences between the way of Jesus and religion. There are many religions that believe in a type of heaven or paradise, and for some of them, it's personal. But frankly, it isn't all that wonderful. Through Easter, however, God is showing us that our future is wonderful.
Thank you, thank you, thank you. So before we dive into this second point, that um, the e promise, the good promise of Easter is that our future is wonderful, I, I need to mention that this, just a real quick disclaimer, that this is probably the least known part of the Christian faith. Even for many very devout Christians, this is an aspect of it that I don't think that is very familiar. So what we're familiar with is the, this popular conception of heaven as like floating on clouds with angels' wings and strumming a harp. And this may be a personal future, for sure. Okay, we exist personally in that conception. But it isn't a wonderful future, at least not my opinion, okay? And, and because it's not the future that we really actually long for. In a heaven like that, we are disembodied, purely spiritual beings. 
And here's what Easter does. Easter breaks into history and says, that is not our future. This is not what Jesus is inviting us into. And Easter is the first and best example. So Jesus doesn't just say, it's really me. He says, look, I have my flesh and bones. I have my flesh and bones. Here's the deal. A purely spiritual heaven is supposed to be like some kind of consolation for the work or the disappointment or the suffering that we endure in this world. It's supposed to be some kind of escape by popular conceptions. But the resurrection, Easter, isn't something ethereal. It isn't an escape at all. It's actually an earthly, real, flesh and bones existence. And I know this sounds weird to us because, again, I, I think this is the, one of the least known parts of the Christian faith. But the future that the gospel of grace of Jesus that, that it's offering us is not one where we're purely spiritual, disembodied, cloud-riding angels strumming harps all day. That's not the future. In fact, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it says that at the end of time, heaven comes down to earth. And that we will have resurrected, like Jesus, we will have resurrected and glorified bodies. I have no idea what that means, okay? But it means we will have resurrected and glorified bodies. We will have our flesh and bones. C.S. Lewis has a cool way of thinking about it. He says it like this. We know not what we shall be, but we may be sure that we shall be more, not less, than we were on earth in this present life. Our natural experiences, sensory, emotional, imaginative, are only like the drawing, like penciled lines on flat paper. If they vanish in the risen life, they will vanish only as pencil lines vanish from the real landscape, not as a candle flame that is put out, but a candle flame which becomes invisible because someone has pulled up the blind, thrown open the shutters, and let in the blaze of the risen sun. The new heaven and earth is not a consolation for the life here that we lost. It is the restoration of the life we were always meant for. It's the restoration of the life we've always wanted. One of the oldest creeds in the church is called the Apostles' Creed. It's a statement of faith, like what, what does it mean to follow Jesus as far as what you believe? And in part, this is part of what the Apostles' Creed says. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Easter is worth trusting because it's good. It tells us that the future is personal, where we will be ourselves, where we can love and be loved, and it's wonderful. We might not know exactly what it is, but we know that it's not just going to be strumming harps on clouds. We, will, we won't be ghosts or angels, we will have our real flesh and bones, whereas one of my favorite authors says, our real feet 
will run in the real grass. Our real hair will blow in the real wind. Hopefully more hair for me. So, all that being said, for a personal and wonderful future to be truly good, for the presence of that future to change how our present lives like live out in a real nitty-gritty day-to-day way, Easter must also mean that the future is certain. That the future is certain. Now, we talk about this often. Jesus came here on a mission to seek and save the lost, to, to make grace, to make grace the undeserved love, acceptance, forgiveness, and affection of God, possible and real, possible and accessible. So his crucifixion makes grace possible. We've talked about how and why that is before. We'll talk about it again. But it is his resurrection, it's Easter, that makes grace real, that makes it accessible for us. Easter is good because it proves that our personal and our wonderful future is certain. It's certain. I was shopping in Best Buy a couple years ago. Best Buy is a store that you could go to and go walk in and buy stuff there. Back in the day, kids, sorry. Um, anyway, uh, I was, went into Best Buy. I used to love to go into stores like that. Anyways, and I bought this item, and some of you guys, we've been to Best Buy, and as you're walking out, there's the security guard there, and he stopped me, and they always want to check you for a receipt. And I always think, like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to swipe this stereo speaker or something, right? But anyways, he stopped me for this receipt. Um, and, but essentially, but what was going on was I wasn't free to leave until I proved that the price had been paid for what I wanted. Easter proves that Jesus' death killed death. The resurrection is the receipt. It's, it's the receipt that anything and everything that stands between us and God, including death, has been eradicated. Now, again, exactly how and why that works like that, those are great questions, stuff that we've wondered about together in the past. We'll wonder about it together in the future. But for our point this morning, the resurrection is like a cosmic receipt. This is what makes our personal and wonderful future so good. It's trustable because it's also certain. In every religion, there is something you have to do or achieve or attain to earn eternal life, whatever that looks like in that religion, okay? In fact, we hear this all the time. Different religions are just different paths to God. And essentially what this means is different religions are different ways to earn your way to heaven, to deal with our, the human dilemma, okay? And how much, depending on the religion, if you're an ancient Egyptian, that meant all day, every day, 24-7, you are doing things that you've got to do to, to deal with you love life and you're gonna die, okay? That is the definition of religion. 
what do I need to do to get to God? But Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to end them. Jesus is not saying, my way is the path that leads from you to God. Follow it and you'll earn eternal life. He's saying the opposite. He's saying, I am the path from God to you. The reason our future can be certain is because it doesn't depend on us at all. And thank God for that. It's all about Jesus, and Easter proves that. The Bible puts it like this. Entering into this fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. It's not a matter of keeping a long list of laws. No, you're already in. Not through some secretive initiation, but rather through what Jesus has already gone through for you, destroying the power of death. It was a resurrection God raising you from the dead as he did Jesus. God brought you alive right with Jesus. This is why the mission of Jesus, his message, is called the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of grace. It is all about his, good, his goodness, not ours. His power, not ours. His ways, not ours. The path he takes to us, not the path that we take to him. That is certainly something worth not only trusting in because it's good, but worthy of our worship because God is good. And Easter proves it.
wrap up this month looking at Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, just want to say to us one last time that Easter is not only true, it's good. It's not only true, it's good. And because of that, we can do much more than just believe in it. We can trust in it. And when we do, the human dilemma that we all face, that every human being has ever who's ever lived has faced, we love life and it ends, that that human dilemma can fade into its proper place in our day-to-day life. Because death loses its sting. There is no need for it to dominate our lives. 
through, because we're obsessed with that fact or to direct our lives through some kind of hope that we can distract ourselves from it. It means we can face the human condition head on and get on with life. And that means everything begins to change right here, right now, beginning with us. Because nothing transforms us and our real everyday life in the present more than the presence of the future that is personal, wonderful, and certain. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time in this place, for this opportunity to be together, to come together, to remember and celebrate who you are and what you've done, what you're doing, and what you're going to do. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for coming to us, for coming for us, and for inviting us into life with a capital L. God, I pray that you would give us the faith to not just believe it's true, but trust that it's good. And to put the worries and anxieties of day-to-day life and the biggest, life, the biggest dilemma of all time, put them in their proper place so that we can get on with living. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. See you next week.